Welcome to Gen C. Gen C is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akineni from Vayner3. Avery, I am so excited to see you and have our conversation today. You are the best part of my week. What is going on with your voice, first of all? Wow, for one, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> I'm honored. And unfortunately, I lost my voice this week. So Gen Z fam, I apologize. I know it sounded a little bit scratchy. It's actually gotten a lot better. I think I was fortunate enough to not have to talk that much yesterday. So if my voice is a little in and out, Sam's going to take the lead here. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you still made the time for us. Really excited for today's conversation. Also for our guest, who is Mickey Friedman from Flare.ai. We'll talk about that in a second. But first, I thought, you know, we spent a lot of time talking in the last couple of weeks around the idea of NFTs and live events and token-gated access. And in one of our chats, I think it was Patricio from Poap shared that the rapper Boogie with a Hoodie is using Poaps for his concert tour, where every single show he goes, he shows a unique code and people claim them. We'll put the link to the Poap gallery in the chat notes. But what I thought was really interesting was most of these people are probably not in crypto. They're probably not even necessarily that forward on Web3 in general. But I love the fact that he's giving a collectible per stop. And then just by having that, it gets people into a Discord. It allows them to retarget them for merch and all that. And it just felt like such an easy and interesting way that we could very passively be getting more people into the space. I want to know if you have any thoughts around the idea of the simplification of utilizing collectible assets as a gateway into the Web3 ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm a big fan of Patricio and all things POAP. I think we probably have pioneered most of the brand use cases for POAP, and I love what they do. And I was not familiar before Patricio told me about it with Boogie Wood Hoodie. He sounds like an amazing musician, an artist. I love the idea of using POAPs as a bridge from experiential to a digital community. We do this type of thing with POAP all the time. Actually, just at South By, was looking at a recap deck this week with one of our partners. We had an activation with Johnny Walker where you had to claim a POAP to get a free drink. And that really motivates people to claim a POAP because everybody wants a free drink. And there were like 4,000 claimed, which I thought was really nice. Like, that's a real number that's exciting and awesome. I think that the idea for musicians or talent or like brands who are doing something to move beyond that moment is a huge thing. And Poet makes it really easy, right? Like you can just put in your email address or your phone number and it links. Where I think there's still a pretty big gap though is, okay, I got this NFT, I got this Poet, now what? That now what experience needs to be more compelling than it is today. Because we've got a lot of Poets floating out there and you know a lot of Poets in the wall in the custodial Poet wallets for people who've never reused them and never use them for that next step. And I think that's what's missing in a lot of cases. But I think it's an amazing gateway. It's an awesome, free, fun way to prove you were there and start the first step into Web3. I think Patricio likes to call, he likens your first POAP to your first kiss. You don't really know what you're doing, but you're still getting started. Um, <laughs> maybe we should bring Patricio on one of these days because I really like what he's building and I really like it as a link from experiential to a loyalty program or to a digital community. 
I'm looking at the sort of feed right now. March 4th in Brooklyn, 278 people claimed. In Philadelphia, March 3rd, 165 people. In Dallas, a few days before, 90. In Washington, D.C., 103. So each show he does just adds, you know, 100 people, 100 people, 100 people into the membership club of Boogie What a Hoodie. We've talked a lot, I think, about NFTs in general as a funnel strategy. And this is such a great example of you get in the membership club. I grew up where I had paper tickets, like ticket stubs from concerts I went to, like taped to my wall. But that didn't get me anything. Sam, you had a stone slab, to be honest. It was inscribed. <laughs> Might have been inscribed. But people refer to NFTs for events as the ticket stub, but they don't actually say, no, the ticket stub didn't have any utility other than when people came to your house, right? This is the opportunity to supercharge a ticket stub as a gated access opportunity. It's not hard to set up a token gated telegram, a token gated discord. And suddenly you have people who all share the common love of the artist or of the restaurant or of the coffee shop. And you can then figure out ways to sort of reward their loyalty, which I think is a really just beautiful thing that more people should be doing. Exactly. Link experiential to a digital experience and a community building. And if people are really passionate around Boogie with a Hoodie, then great, amazing. They can share that passion. And it's an audience that he or she can own and can you know, co-create with that group, which is a lot better than just having people who follow you on Instagram and you can't really reach them organically. You always remind me about co-creation and I keep forgetting that that's like so much of the part of this is letting that community help be a part of the storytelling. And again, you have your like your first step in with your NFT. Talking about tokenization, this week we saw a home in Atlanta that was sold for $215,000 on OpenSea. It was another sale by the company Roofstock. We spoke to them last October at one of our events. They're tokenizing real estate. And so the fact that I can go on, I can buy the NFT on OpenSea and I now have a house is pretty wild. Would love your two minute on the tokenization of real world assets also feels like something we don't collectively talk enough about, but is such a great way. I know California is doing like tokenizing like titles for cars, right? Like there's a lot of easy ways of asset transfer if you can do this. So are we at the beginning of a tokenization wave in your opinion? We're at the very beginning of that tokenization wave. I think right now what we're seeing is more proofs of concept because there are a few houses, there's been a few in Florida that have you know, sold as NFTs, a couple of titles that have moved onto the blockchain. But the thing that matters with titles and deeds is the network effect of you, someone that has to recognize said title. And I think what we're seeing right now is the early kind of proof of concept that, hey, this is possible and this is what it will look like. And right now that captures earned media and it creates a sense of innovation and it shows what's possible. In order for this to really take hold, it'd have to be like, hey, a big condo building or a very desirable, popular place is doing this. And that's when you really see the benefits. Because if you're an army of one, you know, onboarding these things, I think it, you show that it's possible. But in the future, we'll need that network effect to really enable the benefits of blockchain to be realized. I mean, what Roofstock does, which I think is interesting, is they pre-vet everything in essence so that you can't like suddenly have someone hack your wallet and now they own your house. So they are figuring out the ways, I think, to stop sort of the malicious opportunities there. But I have thought, as someone who's bought a house in my life, when you pay the person doing the title, when you pay the lawyers, when you pay, you know, you're closing the mortgage, you're doing all this paperwork, there's stacks and stacks of paper, you spend all this time, there's little bits of money going everywhere. And it just feels like a super inefficient process. And so if there was a way, maybe it's on the onboard versus the purchase, but the way to make the purchase side really easy and take out some of those middlemen who are like stepping on the sale all day long for their percentages of fees, it does feel like a big opportunity for the future. It feels like a massive opportunity for the future. And it's something that has such a clear practical utility. 
that won't necessarily like be as involved in speculative assumptions that that's one of the reasons I really like it. I think it's awesome to see a house tokenized, a house for sale as an NFT. What I would be really fired up is if, hey, the hottest new building in Miami is going to be tokenized from day one, is going to be only for sale with NFTs, because that would create enough of a network effect for that to really be interesting. And that's where I'd love to see it go. Maybe I should do that. Maybe that's a good side project. Here we go. Right. Just stay at the Avery on South Beach. Yeah, it's a good name. You know, it's funny. I had a call with a guy today and behind him, he had the most impressive collection of bolo ties I've ever seen. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And I said, oh, have you worn every one? He said, I have to wear them because I actually make them. And so I test them all to make sure they work. And he said, oh, by the way, every one of them has an NFC chip so that people who buy them by NFT can then redeem it for the real world bolo tie, which I didn't know was a market we needed, but now there is a market for. Avery, the final thing I want to talk to you about before we get to our guest was this was sort of a big and not very good week in sort of the crypto landscape around the SEC and regulation or lack thereof. You know, we saw the SEC come after Coinbase this week, you know, which is interesting because the SEC also allowed Coinbase to go public. So they kind of went through all the vetting and Coinbase more than almost any other company has sort of tried to work with regulators. I think they put out a thread that they'd spoken to members of Congress 30 different times. So, you know, if not them, then who can make it past this? But I just wondered through the lens of this show, how should brands think of crypto as a marketer when you see the government coming after all of these companies in the crypto space? This is a really hot topic and it's a really important topic that listeners who are brands or listeners who are, you know, regular CoinDesk readers and listeners might be different groups. I'm personally very bullish on crypto and very, very bullish on digital assets and the digital economy. The issues that we're seeing sort of manifest from the SEC, I think, are very real. And I do think that oftentimes this makes the crypto space too risky for brands right now or for them to meaningfully participate until there's very clear guidance on exactly how this type of thing should work. I've had plenty of conversations with tax and accounting and financial teams within big organizations. And of course, it's their decision. And many times they have determined this is a space that's a little bit too new for them to jump into until they have really crystal clear regulation. At the same time, there's plenty of brands who jumped right in and embraced it and they're publicly traded companies. And there's a lot of examples of those. But the risk appetite is different brand by brand. I want to quote Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, when he was asked to explain what had just happened with the SEC in football terms. So I'm not a big sports fan, but I thought this was hilarious. Brian writes, imagine you've got both football and soccer refs on the field, but we're actually playing pickleball, the fastest growing new sport in America. Shout out the fives. The refs can't really agree on the rules of this new game, and one of them decides to change a call they made back in April 20 of 21. And I think that that is just really pointing out in layman's terms how unclear these waters are. Coinbase has made tremendous efforts to work with regulators. So let's see what happens in light of this sort of new information. I do think that when we have clear regulation, a lot of brands have spent a lot of time being very thoughtful around who they should work with in this space, should they take crypto. And if crypto becomes increasingly accepted as digital currency, they'll absolutely do it in the United States. And if not, I think this could probably delay their adoption of crypto. At the same time, I think Web3 is way broader than just crypto. So there's plenty of ways that brands can participate in Web3 without needing to be, you know, accepting or handling or holding crypto. That's where I went to, which is with what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and with Signature. Of course, the government is super worried right now about what feels like shaky financial systems. Not that I believe that Bitcoin is, right, or Ethereum is. But 
it does feel like they focus so much on the financial piece that government in general ignores the innovation piece. And that's where I think we end up losing because as we know, there is a fantastic opportunity for the infrastructure of membership and loyalty programs for digital assets and digital collectibles that sort of public blockchains make work really well. And I think that's what the real forward thinking brands are looking as this is like part of their tech stack. And they also want to avoid financial speculation. So it feels like, to your point, we need to be thinking Web3 more than we need to be thinking crypto as we move forward. But we shouldn't be scared that creating a loyalty program on a blockchain is suddenly going to get you shut down by the SEC, correct? I agree. And I think it's also a reason a lot of companies are looking into private blockchains. We haven't seen this kind of manifest much in the press yet, but I think that's happening. And I think we'll start to see some of those coming out for this type of a reason. Avery dropping the alpha on Gen C. Brands going private blockchain. Look at that. Avery, is AI part of Web3? You know what I'm going to say. I take the most <laughs> expansive view of Web3 as the future of the internet, the future of connected consumer behavior. And I think that AI and NFTs and crypto and metaverse is actually a lot more similar than it is different because it's reacting to what consumers want out of the internet and what consumers are seeking in, you know, from brands and from their digital experience. Consumers want to be the main character of their internet experience. We're seeing this manifest in a lot of different ways from social to all these Web3 initiatives. And I think that consumers want an internet that's more immersive, that's more personalized, that's more ownable. And generative AI is just one of these tools. I see this as a technology that is matching a consumer need. And the brand opportunity is to leverage that zeitgeist to drive real business value for themselves. But you might have a different take. And I think you probably do. Well, I mean, I think that it's a trap we get ourselves into, right? If you look at the way that you know, Chris Dixon explains, you know, that sort of web one was read, web two is read, write, and the social internet, web three is read, write, own. It sounds like read, write, create, generate, own, trade, you know, is sort of what goes into web three as a macro. I think that AI is a tool. I'm going to challenge you on that a little bit. I think some people would argue that they do own what they're creating, right? They would feel like that's something that they made. And I believe that the current stance from the U.S. Trademark Association is that anything created with AI is not copyrightable, but I feel like a lot of people would feel differently. And I think ownable is such a subjective feeling. You know, I've done consumer research with big gamers and they feel like they do own their skins and they feel like they do own their Roblox assets. And in this sort of like NFT world and crypto world, we think owning means self-custody and that is what it means to us as people who are very deep in the space. Ownable is a little bit more subjective than I think some people envision. I agree with you there. I remember for a site art project I was doing in the 2016, 2017 area, I ran an Instagram account that got very popular that then got banned by Instagram and I lost all connectivity to it. We won't say why it got banned. But the fact was that I, in essence, had built a brand that was taken away from me because I didn't, in the end, own anything because it was on the rails of somebody else. I think that right now, and that's part of the reason I love Web3 is because you can free yourself, right, from the platforms of those. I think the question I have, and we're going to talk about it with our guests in a minute also, is the concept around ownership when you are utilizing a toolkit that potentially is copyright infringing from the minute you utilize it. 
then you are then building that into an asset you're selling to someone else. I just think you start to get into some like gray areas when it comes to what true creativity and true ownership is. I'll give you an example. If I say I want Darth Vader and Wolverine and I want them on the set of The Godfather and I want a generative soundtrack that's based on the music of Portishead and AI can create all of this for me. If I go out and sell it, that does not necessarily mean that I'm not going to be subject to folks coming after me because the IP is in public domain. It just happens to have been scraped by these engines. And I think that's where the gray area comes. Like I'm not someone who feels like trademarks don't exist in the Web3 world, even though anyone can go out and sell something in OpenSea today. But as we saw with the Metaburkin case, that doesn't mean it's going to live in the future. I completely agree. And I am a person who fortunately gets to follow the letter of the law because there's a lot of scrutiny on a lot of the work that we put out and the partners that we work with need to adhere to the strictest of standards when it comes to things like copyrights, because they will be sued for sure. And, you know, Vayner, for all the things that we run at as quickly as possible, we've run at AI internally, but we haven't put out a single like external piece of work on AI because I think the clarity around where the data is coming from, who owns it is still very much yet to be determined. But there's no question that this is advancing at an exponential, not a linear pace. And in the past few months alone, like we've seen this be, hey, this is kind of a fun thing to, you know, hundreds of millions of users embracing this to innovative partnerships that are coming out on a daily basis. So I think AI is absolutely here to say, I think every marketer who's listening to this right now, want to encourage you to play around with the tools that OpenAI has created for free whether that's Dolly or ChatGPT, you should be familiar with it because even if it's not something that your legal team is going to let you release today, it's without question changing the face of how consumers are accessing the internet. So it's just absolutely fascinating. And to me, it falls squarely within this next era of the internet. So I'm super pumped for Mickey. With that, let's transition. We'll take a quick break. When we get back, we will speak with Mickey Friedman who is one of the co-founders of Flare AI, which is a tool that's exactly what you're talking about. It's the opportunity for brands to utilize your own brand assets to create your marketing portfolio from AI systems that use prompts, that uses images, that you compose your own output. And I think it's just really interesting because you and I have been talking about this so much over the last couple of weeks to sort of speak with someone who's in the trenches of building one of these systems. So when we get back, we will be talking to Mickey. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer marketers, advertisers, brand leaders, creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code GENC to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com slash consensus or check the link in the show notes. All right. So we are here with Mickey Friedman of Flare AI. Mickey, how is it going? It's going really well. Thank you so much for having me. Avery and I mentioned Mickey, I would say, once every three or four episodes since we started the podcast, just because I think both of us have met her at different points and we're really impressed with the work that she is doing, which you guys will hear about but also that she is sort of on the cutting edge of those playing in the AI space as it relates to brand marketing. And we just thought it'd be like a really interesting conversation to talk specifically around what innovations are happening in that field. 
So with that, Mickey, why don't you start just by telling us a little bit about your background, because I know it's pretty interesting. Sure. So I could tell you a little bit about my professional background, but also what has motivated me to enter this space. I have a traditional ML background. I split my time between Adobe and Tesla professionally. But ever since I was little, I grew up in a family that was also artistic. So my mom is a concert pianist. My dad is a mathematician. I've always been pushed towards tech, but I was sort of an art hacker on the side. I think I got that from my mom. When generative art started to become a little more popular, not like it is now, but in 2021, I was a part of this community that was working with these models to generate art pieces. And gradually, my friends started to ask me about whether this could be used commercially. So I started working with just my friend's dad at first. He owned a wine shop in Union Square. I was just generating backgrounds and posting wine bottles into them. I was basically an agency called Osmosis Studio, like an AI-enabled agency. And as I started to have more customers, I thought to myself, can we make this self-serving? Can this be something that everyone can use? Can we you know, create brand consistency? Can we work with specific products? And, you know, as we started building, all those questions started to become answered themselves. So that's how Flare AI came about. And I would describe ourselves as a product photography tool that's AI enabled, but also a brand engine. And the goal is to build a brand engine for every single brand so that we're able to generate marketing collateral in your brand's own visual identity, according to your customer's unique needs. Mickey, when you talk about ML, you're talking about machine learning. And I want to get your perspective before we kind of dive into you specifically, but it feels like the last nine months of AI and the conversation around that and whether it's generative AI, whether it's machine learning, whether it's computer vision, it's all the different things that sort of go into the fact that computers are getting smarter. You've been working in this space longer than many, but why do you think that this moment has sort of captured the public's attention so much? Well, there have been so many innovations in the space. Right now, people are building applications, they're being productionized. So I guess it would start with the models that have come out recently. The first one that really grabbed people's attention was this text-to-image model called Dolly, where you would write in some text and then you would get you know, an art piece at the very end of it. The next stage of this was ChatGPT. And the GPT model is basically, it predicts text. So if you ask it a question, it'll try to predict words to answer your question. GPT has been around for a while, but ChatGPT really brought it into the mainstream because it finally had an interface that made so much sense to people. So, you know, I think that that really sparked people's interests. And ever since then, AI has been evolving at a lightning fast pace, and people have been really applying it to these unique use cases. So Flair's doing product photography, but, you know, Jasper has automated copy. There are a few other startups that are helping with people write emails, you know, personalized emails. Personalization is a huge theme that I'm seeing pop up. It's really exciting. You mentioned GPT has existed for quite some time. Can you explain what GPT is? Sure. So GPT is a text model that OpenAI actually released in 2020. GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. You can do a number of things with it. You can summarize larger paragraphs. You can, you know, generate text, you can generate stories, you can generate emails. There are a lot of use cases and basically you sort of trigger GPT based off of the prompt that you feed it. If you're trying to get it to generate emails, you might write a few sample emails to give GPT examples and then it sort of follows that format, but it can go off script as well. 
The other thing about GPT is that it often hallucinates. So it's not always grounded in fact. A lot of people who are using ChatGPT, it sounds very authoritative, this model. You know, everything's extremely well written, but it certainly does not reflect, I guess, reality all the time. Does Flare leverage generative pre-trained transformers or how does your product work and how would a brand or company potentially use Flare? Sure. So we use a different model. We use a diffusion model and those seem to be very popular for image-based modeling because what Flare does is it generates images. So it's a very different foundational model from GPT. There are two core features to Flare. The first one allows you to upload a product image and then we generate the world around it based off of what you tell it to generate. So if you want to put it on the beach, you would basically describe a scene where your product is on the beach and then the AI generates it. We also recently introduced two features within the product photography products where you're able to upload props. So not only are you able to upload your product, but you're able to put it next to the lamp that's in your house. And we're able to take all these different elements and build an entire scene around it, like bring it all together so that the lighting's consistent, the shadows look good. It has to make sense with the overall composition so that you can post it to your socials. The second product that we're introducing is for, I guess, larger clients. It's called the Brand Engine. And what the Brand Engine does is it generates content that represents your brand's visual identity and style guide. So you would upload your style guide, you would upload, I guess, like your messaging, you would upload your Instagram, your website. When we take all these different inputs, all these elements of your branding, and we create your own personalized model. And the model produces content that is consistent with your brand's style, the signature style, the visual identity. And we think that this is going to be extremely valuable because a lot of these more generalized models, they're trained on public data, but they don't cut to the core identity of what a brand is. They don't really signal your messaging to your customers. So we're beginning to slowly roll out this feature, see how people are responding to it. And I really am excited about that. We talk about generative pre-trained transformers. You're talking about hallucinations. It feels like AI right now is like a 14-year-old trying LSD for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's not far from the truth, but I guess like when we get down to the practicality, Mickey, right? Like I'm interested in how it's being utilized in the product world today, because it feels like everyone has announced that they're using AI, but what that really means more than just a marketing play, like Avery and I saw this in Web3 for the last two years, people have been, you know, diving in head first, but then like what it really means sometimes is like, oh, they just released four NFTs as a collectible for a concert. So what do you think is like today, how generative AI is being used for product marketing and where do you think it's going to be going in the future? I'm just really interested in kind of what that trajectory looks like. I think that something that AI will really help with is introducing personalization at scale. You know, like when you have a customer, you typically are trying to serve their needs based off of who they are and what appeals to them. So I think that being able to do this without any manual intervention is going to be extremely valuable. But, you know, that brings into question, where is the human in this process? Like, is the pipeline ingesting your you know, branding and serving it straight to the customer? Or is there a human 
somewhere in this middle of this that is guiding the process and making sure that it's palatable. So that's something that I think a lot of different companies have different theories on. And, you know, I guess that depends on what your values are. Mickey, you know, I've spent the last five years working in an advertising agency where we spend a lot of time producing assets, producing mock-ups, doing product photo shoots and all of that. And I can see there's such a very clear use of generative AI to help automate some of these processes, which certainly are really important, but often can be tedious and can be repetitive. Can you explain why brands need AI and how they can start to embrace the early days of AI from a marketing perspective? It really depends on where you are as a brand. I'll just tell you about how people are using Flare currently. So like we have some brands, they're a lot smaller, they operate from the home, their teams are like anywhere. They're sometimes solopreneurs themselves, but they've got small teams and they can't afford, you know, a designer. So the way that they're able to create content consistently, but also content that's fresh for their socials is they use Flare because it's extremely cheap. It's $10 for like an unlimited amount of marketing collateral each month. And they're really able to produce content quickly. It relieves them of the burden of having to think of something new and interesting to share with their Instagram followers, their TikTok followers every single day. And that's a use case that we see. So that's sort of for like new brands or small brands, small businesses. As brands become larger and they have design teams, they've got creative teams in-house, Flare is currently being used as a creative testing tool. We see people using it with their focus groups or as like a visual communication tool between each other, you know, to sort of prepare for photo shoots, just to exchange thoughts because it's a very collaborative process. So that's what we're seeing across the board. You can either post straight from Flare with like slight edits if there are any blemishes, or, you know, you can use it to basically align with your creative team. So like no one's being automated out. There's a place really for all of these pieces in the AI landscape. I think for small businesses, for mid-sized businesses, this is great. I love the idea actually of it as testing because you could really set a scene even before Avery's team potentially goes out and actually shoots, right? You could use this as a storyboarding tool. But we did see recently that like Coke and OpenAI created a partnership around advertising. And my thoughts keep going to the fact when we've seen AI go rogue, right? I think about when Microsoft's chatbot got really racist or when the Bing chatbot was hitting on Kevin Roos from the New York Times. And so one of the things I'm just wondering about is the idea that if you're a big brand, why would you ever let your marketing go out without a human looking at it? And therefore, do you end up spending the same amount of time in labor? Because now your quality control team gets a lot bigger, but where maybe your creative team gets a lot smaller. So what do you think about the idea of how larger brands will start to utilize this from a marketing perspective? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. From one of my conversations with our customers, humans like to be in the center of the creative process. I think that like a zero to one engine where you just put in text and then it's suddenly out there in the world, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. And I also think that compositions are better when humans are in the center of the creative process. So something that we've really built into Flare, it's not just text to image, you know, through the props, you're able to like really set up the photo shoot digitally. There's a human that controls the composition and your taste is naturally embedded into whatever you generate. Like AI is filling the blanks. It's basically augmenting or bringing your imagination into the canvas. It's connecting your imagination to the canvas. But I think that humans will always curate the content that they're putting out into the world. 
maybe there will be more of a shift between technical skills that you've developed. Maybe those skills will become more valuable in a curational sense where you're curating the scene instead of, you know, developing a really refined technique. I can see that being the case. So there might be a skill shift, but overall, like we are building flair to put humans in the center of the process because we just think the humans do it well. I get that. And I think that that's the right approach. I put out a tweet, I think it was last week where I had Midjourney create for me a 70s fashion look based on a model wearing a Kermit the Frog outfit. And the outfit itself was like fire. Like I was like, I would have worn this outfit and it was amazing. But when you start to look into like the blurry bits of the background, you start to see someone with three legs and someone who has no arms. Yeah. <laughs> Terrifying. On first blush, I was like, the output is often incredible and I love it. When you start getting into the details, that's where I just wonder again about, yes, a human has to be at the center, but as a human also have to be at the end and sort of like that last step before this goes to press, you know, how much is that going to be necessary? Or do you think like these will learn how to correct for those simpler mistakes? Yeah, it's interesting. Right now, we do think that humans are going to have to be in the end, at least in the immediate future. Like those mistakes where, you know, they're kind of like hallucinations too. The same problem that, you know, like ChatGPT is having where it's saying things aren't true. It's like images have their own version of that. I think that gradually there will be more guardrails put in place in the product side to sort of detect those abnormalities. So, you know, like before you put something out there in the world, I think that there will be a way to detect, you know, whether there's a three-legged person or there's something is looking off in the background. And those, you know, mistakes will be automated out too, maybe auto-edited out. But for the most part, I think that like having someone basically create the composition, provide a blueprint, I think that's super important. And having, you know, like someone at the very end of the process to give the last go-ahead is also going to be very important. Amazing. And Mickey, I know you've had a lot of conversations with brands as they've been exploring your product. One image that you had posted, I think on your Twitter that I thought was outstanding and I've used as a reference many times was sort of the Chanel number five image. Have you started working with enterprise brands or have any enterprise brands sort of approached you to understand the capabilities of Flare? Do you think the brands are coming to the world of generative AI? I think so. You can't, you know, go into details about who we're working with yet, but I think that a lot of people are extremely interested in the sense that they're able to test out many different concepts all at once. And the one use case that I also see that's very popular is that these brands, they sort of have an idea of marketing collateral that is successful, marketing collateral that works. How can they create many different variations of that marketing collateral? How can they use that same theme with different products? Like those are things that you're not able to do currently. So it's not necessarily creating something from scratch. It's more like you're taking what works and then you're basically generating different variations, you know, that you can use potentially over and over again because you understand, you know, the customer base, you understand what appeals to them. I see that as actually being like an incredible use case for generative AI, like variability, but it's still grounded in something that, you know, is successful and it means something to the brand. I love that you said that brands have a certain idea of how things should look. Those pesky brand guidelines that we're so familiar with that I think are being broadly really challenged by the next generation of consumers. They're oftentimes, particularly in the luxury and the beauty space, but really across all brands, the CMO and the brand guardians will be really specific about how a brand should show up. But the reality is 
everyone's a content creator today on TikTok and on YouTube and on Discord and creators come from everywhere and consumers have a voice now and are actually creating content themselves anyway. And I think that brands who you know can create a little bit of flexibility within those guidelines actually allow their consumers to co-create with them. And I think that might sort of coincide nicely with this revolution that we're in the early days of in the generative AI space. Yeah. I actually haven't thought about this too much because we haven't gotten to the stage yet. But if there's a way for, you know, I guess, customers to create user-generated content with AI to really amplify the brand's voice, that could be extremely powerful. That's something that I'm definitely going to be thinking about later today because that's easy content creation. Yeah, really beautiful. Well, I think what's interesting about that is if you have a car brand, right, take Volkswagen, you have decades and decades of brand advertising that if you ingested and trained the AI only on that voice, you could, in essence, have someone make their own and at least would keep within guidelines of what the brand has already made acceptable, right? It's almost the kind of like elf yourself of advertising where you just put yourself into a fixed universe. Mickey, what do you think like a brand needs to know to start? As you're talking to folks, is there, you know, three things that you tell them of like, how do you begin the process of exploring these tool sets? really just to manage expectations. The difficulty that we've had onboarding brands is with prompting. And we really tried to configure the UI to sort of help with this. So I think that talking to the AI is its own challenge. There are a lot of things that as a user, you don't have insight into. So for example, like every single model that is every single AI model that is used is trained on a corpus of data. So as the user, you have no idea what data has been taken in by the model. So you have no idea what works well. You know, you have no idea what to prompt it to trigger the most successful responses. We've sort of worked around this in a number of ways, because at first we let people write in like a string of text and they rarely got good results because it's very difficult to communicate with the AI. And there's so many questionable AI products out there that you're going to give up if you're not getting a good result in the first two to three generations. So, you know, something that we've done for Flare, at least, is we've provided these templates. So all you have to do is click on an image that you want your marketing collateral to look like. Then we expose the prompt behind it. We tell you how to make it and you can edit it to customize it. And then this shows the user what works and what doesn't work. They can sort of learn from like looking at images, looking at the prompts, and then they make the connection. They say, oh, like they do, you know, pack shot photography very well. This is how I describe it. This is how I talk to the AI. That's been a successful feature on our part. I would say like the first thing that they should, I guess, do when investigating new products is like think about the prompting, think about like how to talk to the AI. The second thing that they should know is that the model that you're working with, whether it's Dolly or GPT, it doesn't have any understanding of what your brand is. If you're a small business, it may understand what McDonald's is because they've got a large presence online. But you're going to probably have to teach it visually what your brand is. You're probably going to have to feed it information as to what your brand is. Even though it's like on the internet, that doesn't mean that it was included in the process of training the model. We have seen lawsuits already for mid-journey and stable diffusion where like Getty Images says, we know you ingested all of our stuff. So when you say, give me a photograph in the style of Richard Avedon, you're doing copyright infringement. I think, and Avery, I would love your perspective on this, because I think if you are a big brand and you are utilizing it and you're saying in the style of an artist that we like, how much are you opening yourself up to the challenge where that artist is like, okay, I didn't create the work, but you used my vibes. 
Yeah, I think that's a really huge challenge. And both of you all know how passionate I am around generative AI. We haven't used a stock photo in a deck in six months at Vayner 3 because I have made my team get on board with MidJourney and they do have a subscription program. And I just believe that this is transformative. At the same time, my lawyers won't let us use any of that externally. That is for mock-ups and internal use only. For storyboarding is okay, not for anything that's going into final production. Because even if you're not directly typing in an artist's style, the data set where this is being pulled from is not something that we have complete understanding of today. While I'm not a lawyer, I know this is an area that a lot of legal teams find is a bit gray. And without fully understanding where the model is sourcing from, you can't really understand who should be getting proper credit. I do believe that a lot of these companies are looking with the right intent, providing credit where credit is due. But the reality, the exponential pace of innovation makes that really challenging to do. So if you're a Fortune 500 brand, I think we see brands using AI for novelty, like the Mint Mobile, Ryan Reynolds, Radius Script off chat, GPT, the Heinz Ketchup example, the Coke example. The AI component is a novelty, but I don't think we've yet seen many brands that I'm aware of at least leverage generative AI to produce like actual campaign assets because they're too worried about getting sued. Although this week we saw Adobe release their AI engine and their promise is that all of the seed work that's being ingested is copyright free or they own the copyright of. And I also think that's a really interesting play, especially for Adobe, who with Photoshop and Figma and all of that, like really wants to own the design space. I thought that was a really smart move of them. I wonder if the output's going to be great, which is a different question. But I thought at least that was a smart play of we can grant you copyright on everything that you generate if you subscribe. Mickey, did you have a third? We interrupted you there. The third was just that it doesn't often get text right for at least image generation. So there are different ways that you can build solutions around that. But yeah, back to the data, the way that I see it is that over time, organizations, whether or not they're brands or maybe even if like they're generating content for like their pitch decks, I truly believe that the model is going to shift to everyone having their own personalized model that's trained on private data. That's sort of what we're trying to approach with Flare. So instead of having like a general purpose model where you tag an artist at the very end of it, I think that all of these different companies are going to have their own models that reflect their voice, reflect their visual identity, and they can basically permission the model as they see fit. That would really remove the copyright infringement issue that Avery was mentioning. Maybe like a large diffusion model would be the base of that. But overall, I think that the voice of the brand will come through the fine tuning process. Absolutely. I think that's the direction where things are heading. We've seen some of the plug-in integrations that have been announced this week with folks like Instacart and OpenTable plugging in directly to OpenAI to sort of combine. I think that's what we'll see as brands enabling certain subsets of their data to work with OpenAI. And that'll probably be the way that happens. And Sam, you know where I'm going with this. Of course, we are deep believers. And the best way to prove this and see what actually came from a brand is, of course, the public blockchain, which is something I can't wait to see come to life. But thank you for sharing your perspective there, Mickey. Really, really interesting. And I believe you're building something that is going to be a huge unlock for SMBs today, but potentially enterprises of tomorrow. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. So Mickey, flare.ai, is that where people can find it? And they can find you on Twitter. We'll put you in the show notes. Anything you want to sort of leave us with in terms of things you're excited about in the AI space, things to watch out for? Will the Terminator come and be knocking on our door in a couple of years? Oh my God. I am so optimistic. 
that it's just going to augment our imaginations. I think like there's a disconnect, at least when you're creating a design, when you're creating visual content. Some people have the skills to bring their imaginations to life and they're very gifted. But I think AI will democratize the ability to design, the ability to communicate what you're imagining to the people around you. So I think that AI is just a huge gift. I think that we should remain optimistic, build guardrails to prevent bad actors from abusing it for sure. But when you see all these screenshots leading GPT to say malicious things, just know that there's someone who's actively spending time trying to trigger that response. Most people are not like that. Most people have good intentions and that'll come through eventually. Amazing. Mickey, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. We were really excited to sort of chart along with what you guys are building at Flare. And if you can make that blockchain concept come to life, we will have you back on. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mickey. Wow. So great to hear from Mickey. She's such a bright young mind who's doing really cool stuff. I mean, she founded this company and I know a lot of the brands that I've shown this to have been like, wow, that was from generative AI. Like I pay you all a lot of money to do a lot of product photo shoots. So this is going to save me some costs, right? I'm kidding. But actually I already was asked by a procurement team how much of a reduction they can get because of AI. So <laughs> it's coming. No, that's amazing. I met Mickey at a dinner in New York. Shout out to Dave Krugman and the All Ships team. They had uh, set it up and she and I were seated next to each other. And yeah, we just spoke all night on the possibilities of how brands can utilize these toolkits. And as someone who, when I was very young, created my own company and was building to help innovate within the brand space, you know, I had that feeling like if I was that age and I was getting into it now, this is exactly what I would be doing. So I'm really excited to see what they do. I thought it was great to hear from her and like, you know, be able to sort of see what they come up with. But also I can't imagine that there aren't a lot of competitors that are going to be popping up in this sort of how brands can simply use AI space. And it sounds like they've been thoughtful on how they're addressing things like copyright and really making sure that the output is usable for especially small and medium-sized brands. 100%. Excited to see where it goes. Avery, thank you so much for a wonderful session. As always, I hope your voice gets better. And next time, I want you at 125%. All right. So... <laughs> Tea, honey, lemon, whatever you got to do. Whiskey. It's just something. Whatever remedy gets my voice back to 100, I'm all for. Sam, thank you so much. Great chat with Mickey. And as always, our dear listeners, please let us know your feedback. Let us know if there's anyone we should have on the pod, any topics. This was a little bit of a new one for us, branching into AI for the Gen C crowd. So curious what y'all think of it. All right. We'll see you soon. Take care. Mm-hmm.